Welcome to the Weekly Squeak, your weekly geeky squeak with me, Christian Schiller. Now, once again, I am recording from a different location. We are now in an Airbnb in Melbourne. And even though it is a public holiday here, Anzac Day, there are people on ladders clanking around painting an apartment opposite. So <laughs> do apologise. This always seems to happen when I decide to record. But we have to press on. We have a packed show this week. First, a selection of articles and links that caught my eye from the past week. And then an interview with uh, Pooh from Mojobot, a quite cool uh, coding educational board game I came across. And they are currently on Kickstarter, so I wanted to get this interview out so those of you who are interested could back the project. Starting with my links of the week... Let's begin with an article from Mustafa Whale from um, Pixelspot. This is an article entitled Using an Essential Phone in 2019. Now, um, this is somewhat personal to me. I do use an essential phone. I seem to specialise in using technology that is maybe slightly left of centre or not as in fashion as it could or should be. And uh, the essential phone was something of a disaster when it was released, uh, created by the father, the godfather, the grandfather, whatever you want to call, of Android, Andy Rubin, who has been somewhat controversial personally in the past few months. I have to look into what happened there. There didn't be much resolution recently. The phone had lots of software problems and technical problems, most of which got fixed later, and then significant price cuts, uh, which led me to buying one. I managed to get one on Amazon.com, shipped over to Germany, including import duties for $300. So... A reasonably high-end phone for less than $300 or for $300. I couldn't really say no. And you get all the updates and it's nice and clean, just the way I like it. And this is an interesting article, just um, recapping that maybe we should relook at this as an option for a device because it's not as bad as you may remember. And even though the company is potentially going bankrupt <laughs> and who knows how much longer it will be supported for, it's a good device to use. The... The interesting thing I uh, found here, which uh, will be useful bearing in mind that the company is slowly going bankrupt, is some of the custom ROMs that are supported by the phone, which I think I may need to start looking into. I think I'm guaranteed updates for a little while yet, but there will come a time probably in the next year when those will stop. So knowing what custom ROMs I can install on the phone to keep using it are useful. Yeah, I love my essential phone actually. A few bugs, a few oddities, but for the most part it's solid and works well. Um, and if you are one of the not many people who also own one, then have a look at this article just to remind yourself that maybe you didn't make the uh, the wrong decision. Next was an interesting article on BBC Music, or BBC in the music section by Peter Rubinstein, about uh, smart speakers, and but from a different perspective, how most people, and there's a report here, 90%, although... This is one of those charts that's slightly hard to parse because it's not a total percentage. It's what people do. So so 90% of people use their smart speakers to listen to music, but then 80% use it to search for real-time information, 75% for factual information, etc., etc. So it's not necessarily that indicative of the total amount of uh, the use, but that it does definitely show that music is a popular use case. And it makes sense. It's relatively easy to use the uh, trigger word for your smart speaker and say play something, uh, depending on the application you use and things like that. So I'm an Apple Music user, and um, 
that is not massively useful for me right now unless I want to use a HomePod or Siri, for example. Uh, it's now on Alexa, but only in the US. Uh, I gather that it will be on Google Home soon, which is what we mostly use in our house, uh, predominantly for controlling lights right now. But actually being able to say, play some music would be great. And I look forward to that opportunity when it is possible for us. But the interesting perspective of this article is not that, it's that um, the way that the smart speakers do this is through categorization of music. And there have been categorization databases of music for a very long time. I remember back in the early days of MP3s, when I used to create a lot more music, you would want to make sure that your metadata for your tracks was uploaded to certain databases that fed, for example, when you used to import a CD into iTunes. And it would look into this database by matching time and a whole bunch of different uh, statistics to pull down the correct metadata. And anyone who's old enough to remember that would remember that a lot of the time it got it comically wrong, but it got it right a lot of the time. And, of course, now most music is coming from streaming services or download services or digitally enhanced CDs that have all that embedded. Metadata is more important than ever on tracks, but even more important when it comes to controlling a music by your voice or by an AI system. So, for example, a, a common use case is people asking for happy music. And how music is determined as happy is not all entirely smart. Often it's just tacking of that music. And the crux of the article is how this has changed the music industry and um, how people are almost keyword stuffing their music uh, in terms of metadata or in terms of actual content to make sure that they get played. Now, <laughs> as in many other cases, this can affect that creative output. Is the other algorithms and the digital devices affecting our creative output too much because we're all competing to want to be heard? There's an interview with the head of um, Amazon Music UK, Paul Firth, who's, whose name actually seems familiar. I've got a funny feeling I might have known him in my musical uh, past life. And he claims that, no, we want to focus on the creativity. We're not encouraging people to do this. Um, there is no bias, et cetera, et cetera. But, I mean, that is slightly hard to believe because uh, Spotify have said similar things with regards to people trying to game their system, and we kind of know that that's not necessarily true. So I'm not 100% sure um, if it will affect the music industry in a positive or a negative. We already have artists creating more tracks instead of albums because that's how people will listen to things on streaming services. And maybe this is another way. Is it good? Is it bad, actually? Um, it, I suppose it kind of depends on the music you're making, and if someone wants to listen to something not happy then there is a there's usually enough people who want to listen to that i guess this is just based on a lot of the the statistics and i suppose i suppose if you're using i feel like if you're using a smart speaker to control music it's often for background music maybe i'm not 100 percent sure if uh, i'm making some big assumptions there um so you will often want a certain sort of music and maybe listening to full-blown death metal is not something you would trigger with your smart speaker i don't know i'd be interested to hear your feedback on that and your uses and whether you've noticed certain patterns in what you what what is given to you when you ask for it. So please, uh, contact details towards the end of the show and I would like to hear what you think on this issue. Next in our slightly tech-focused weekly week this week, there's an article from Wired by Gregory Barber on a, uh, a fight over specialised chips threatens an Ethereum split. 
Now, um, dis full disclaimer, I actually currently uh, contract to the Ethereum Foundation, but I will say that being a very decentralized distributed organization, there are discussions that happen in certain teams that other members of other teams do not necessarily know about, and this is one that I did not know much about, um, so it was kind of interesting to read. So if you remember in 2006, there was the DAO hack, the uh, the very bold and adventurous uh, aut uh, decentralized autonomous um, organization experiment that somewhat backfired. It's a sort of idealistic way of managing an organization. And that uh, technique, that idea has reared its head again. I have been to a, f a few talks recently um, looking at new ways of doing this. And it's almost like this uh, elephant in the room of the 2016 event sort of just cast aside and, and not talked about. <laughs> but at the time, it, it caused a group of uh, core developers to split apart and suggest alterations to the code and towards the algorithms that uh, create the mining algorithms and the proof-of-work algorithms that keep Ethereum secure. Now, anyone who remembers the crypto... Um, kind of speculatory hype peak late 2017 or remember that this also caused a spike in GPU sales to cause uh, to, to allow for better and faster processing and this specifically uh, concerned the Ethereum community with the development of ASIC chips um, and they were specifically designed to handle the computations of particular coins, which concern the community because it sort of gives an unfair advantage. It, it gets interesting because it's proof of work, and if you supplement your work with uh, a powerful tool, is that an unfair advantage, or do you just have the resources to pay for it? It's kind of an interesting kind of more motivational, ethical conversation, I guess. Um, you're not necessarily cheating the system, you're using enhanced processes in the system. I don't know, it's like saying that a sports car driver shouldn't win the race because they had a better car. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know enough about car racing, to be honest with you, to know if that's allowed or not, but it sort of feels like analogous to me that um, maybe you're just uh, better equipped and that's fine, I don't know. I guess in their minds it was an unfair advantage. And about a year or so ago, um, there was this switch to ProgPow, uh, a different consensus algorithm to attempt to counteract the rise of these chips. And, of course, there were people who um, were opposed to that. Unsurprisingly, some of the manufacturers of the chips. Now, the, this article kind of goes basically into the story behind this and then the story is not necessarily new. It's still kind of currently in limbo right now. Um, but if you're interested in hearing more about the, the story behind this and why it happened and uh, where people are up to now with it, as Ethereum kind of consolidates, I guess, outside of the hype cycle, then head over and uh, have a read of the article. Next, an article on Fosbytes by Manisha Priyadashani. Um, on Microsoft, Microsoft have created a new programming language, BOSC. I actually hope to interview the project leader of BOSC in the coming weeks uh, and where we can dig more into it. But it's interesting, you you would think that the programming language scene was was consolidating, that we had quite enough, um, that they were 
developed enough, that they were mature enough, and that they provided a lot of the paradigms and programming styles to suit everybody. But no, um, this is a language that is uh, similar to TypeScript, another Microsoft-founded uh, language. But it uses the semantics, uh, ML, and Node, and JavaScript. So I guess it's a more modern-style language that would suit people who are coming from more modern programming languages or JavaScript. JavaScript is not necessarily modern, but I guess in terms of modern use. And it's an attempt to shift from the paradigm of structured programming from the 1970s. And uh, structured programming is probably what you're familiar to see. Things like loops, conditionals, subroutines, etc. And instead, it uses the concept of functors, which are the same as loops. Uh, and there's an interesting image where you can see in here how this changes things. And to me, it kind of looks more like a sort of a, a I guess, a, a shorthand version of a loop, maybe. I'm not sure. Um, but it's interesting to see how it could work. It's much harder to read. This would have to be a language for more experienced programmers because sometimes uh, with these more shorthand languages, even like Ruby, for example, I remember teaching Ruby to program beginners, the abstraction can make it harder to understand what's going on as well. So... It's uh, it's it's very suited to advanced programs. You kind of know what they're doing and can understand what the shorthand is doing. But if you're trying to learn, it's so abstracted, you don't really know what's happening unless you understand the syntax. Um, and there is a GitHub repository over at uh, Microsoft, uh, github.com slash Microsoft slash Bosque language, spelt B-O-S-Q-U-E. So take a look and hopefully we'll have an interview with the project lead very soon to dig into more detail. Now let's sort of take a slight diversion from tech into the other my other favorite um, aspect of tech that kind of the impact of tech and the impact of tech has been felt nowhere more than in san francisco this is a specific article on the atlantic by alexis c madrigal called who's really buying property in san francisco the rising costs are one of the major impacts of all the tech businesses in san francisco and the interesting thing with san francisco to bear in mind is it's tiny um and this causes a lot of the property issues in that it's so small, there's so little housing. So here is an interesting statistic. There's a lot of interesting statistics in this article, actually. Um, there are 400,000 housing units in San Francisco, which already is not that many when you consider the size of many large cities. And last year, only 5,500 changed hands, which is uh, just over... No, it's not even 1%. It's like 0. 0.1% or something. Very good with maths. But it's a very small percentage. And the, uh, the, the interesting angle in this article is, uh, you know, implying that every kind of San Francisco-based company, every time we use one of them, we're sort of having an effect on this, I guess. Uh, I'm not sure if that's strictly the case. But, you know, so many powerful companies that are now kind of maintaining um, the way we use the world influence the, the cost of living in this tiny city. And there's some great charts you could dig down into here. So who is buying in San Francisco? Uh, the industry that employees belong to who are buying 51% in software, followed by 8.9%, so a massive jump down into finance, and even then, I would say you kind of have um, a fair bit of technology on the, the top couple there, finance and biotechnology, then real estate. <laughs> uh, 
And then healthcare, law, education, venture capital is surprisingly small, which I find strange. Um, and hardware is also strangely low, uh, actually. I guess it's all software in San Francisco. This is obviously buying. This doesn't necessarily represent renting, but um, I guess it's a good indicator. Uh, and then there are even more breakdowns of the neighbourhoods around the areas. Um, Menlo Bay, I guess that's related to Menlo Park and Facebook. I'm not 100% sure. And the companies too. Um, Google, Apple, the big ones, followed by Salesforce, Facebook, LinkedIn, and then a lot of smaller ones. So I don't think this article necessarily proposes any real solutions, but um, I guess it does highlight the real impact of uncontrolled um, IPO raising and finance um, in on, on people's lives and normal people's lives and also the people involved in these projects' lives as well. Um, and uh, one mention in the, early in the article is actually that uh, we talk about IPOs, but many of these companies, very few of them uh, haven't even had an IPO yet. So what will happen when more do? What will be the, the impact on uh, the housing industry there even more. And a lot of people are moving out, and I, I guess that needs to be encouraged more. It is a tiny city. It's amazing. I mean, we talk about the Bay Area, though. This doesn't factor in the, the Bay Area, which is larger. Um, but yeah, have a look at some of those statistics, lots of charts, if that's your sort of thing. Changing tack completely. I now get into my uh, other favorite topic, gaming. This is an article on D&D Beyond, the uh, digital platform behind Dungeons & Dragons uh, by James Hake. Uh, what does Critical Role's record-breaking 11 million Kickstarter mean for D&D? I haven't really ever watched Critical Role. I, I don't know. It just uh, sort of falls off my radar. I sometimes find that kind of overly exuberant American uh, comedy style a little too much for me. <laughs> it goes out of my nerd radar a bit. Um but I know it's very popular, and they were recently kickstarting for a new animated special uh, sort of side of their normal uh, output. They had a goal of 750,000, and they raised 11 and a quarter million, right? From 88,000, nearly 89,000 uh, people. And this surprised the people from the show as much as it did everybody else. And I guess the implications what does this mean for something like DD? I covered uh, a couple of weeks ago the. the the, the the tussles between the Gary Gygaz estates. Um, now D&D is seeing so much popularity in popular culture and so much widespread adoption. It's actually driven something that was always this tiny niche into a large market. And what will this mean for the hobby? What will it mean for people like myself who've been playing for years? Um, will it become more professional? Will it become more commercialized? Um, will we have... Uh, will it be more acceptable to play? I think that's that's already the case. And and how long will that last, I guess, is the the other question. It's also always important to bear in mind that even when board games and role-play games have tremendous success like this, it's still tiny in comparison to computer games. I mean, 11 million is probably a small budget for many <laughs> computer games. So it's worth bearing in mind that even when we celebrate these large successes, they still pale in, in, in significance into the, the computer game budgets and what constitutes a success but it's interesting um I, I i hope they manage to now deliver this is often the problem when uh, a kickstarter is immensely successful more successful it also means more demand on the creator's time 
and will they actually deliver an 11 million worth uh, output, I guess. And finally, uh, an old post. I, uh, I can't tell you who wrote this because for some reason the website is down today, so hopefully it is up when you decide to take a look. I heard, I can't even remember what I heard this on. I heard this on a radio show or read in a blog about tank cemeteries. These places where especially old Eastern Bloc countries left their tanks to die. And I couldn't resist looking into that. It seemed like a fascinating uh, concept, especially as there's one not far from where I currently live in Berlin in uh, neighboring Thuringer, uh, an old Eastern Germany state where a lot of the ex-GDR tanks and some of the current Western German army tanks go to rest. And I, I don't exactly know why they don't just melt them down or destroy them or recycle them and why they all sit there just rusting. But there's a post here from the urbanghostmedia.com, a strange-sounding website, from a good few years ago. This is not a new story, of course. Uh, listing 10 tank cemeteries around the world, a lot in Russia, uh, quite a few in ex-USSR states as well, but in a few other places too. And the images are just bizarre, seeing all these you know, killing machines just lying there, rusting away in deserts and in um, Arctic wastelands and etc. Um, yeah, I don't know if it's possible to go and visit any of these. It would be interesting. I mean, touring it is not that far from me. But I just, I just find this such a strange idea that they're there. And in some cases, thousands of these old uh, tanks just sat there doing nothing. And some are more recent. Some have been de decommissioned. Others haven't even been decommissioned. <laughs> so so it's, it's quite fascinating. And the, the gallery on this page, if hopefully it works when you go to look, is really bizarre to look at. And that was my roundup of links for the week. Now I have an interview with uh, Pooh from Mojobot talking about their uh, coding education board game. So enjoy. I've been working in the education area for four years now. Before that, I was an engineer. And then I started a project lab. And we work on STEM education, mostly in robotics and coding. And we've been teaching kids and working with schools, uh, that kind of stuff. And in the past two years, we've been uh, building Mojobot and developing it. And now it's the development is pretty much done. And so what is Mojobot? So Mojobot is really a tangible coding robot. So we, we, we really like the idea of coding with physical objects. And that's what attracted me to, to start developing it because I think it's, uh, it can really be a useful tool for the younger age group. And also for, for anyone really who's kind of, you know, getting started into coding, you know, because it can be played so very naturally and, um, and also socially. So we think it's a great introduction. And when you, when you play and learn with it, it's, it's natural, easy to get started and you can play with, um, family and friends. And, uh, our, our goal was then to try and make this tangible coding concept, but make it kind of the best there yeah. is. 
And so you've attempted, there's, there's been quite a few coding robots in the past, but what you're attempting to do here, or from what the description in your Kickstarter says, is it's a, well, a kind of coding robot board game. Um, and I can see in the pictures and the video, there's this sort of two-eyed, um, I guess, cube on legs robot with a little aerial sticking out and a very brightly colored board with different spots on the board. And then um, mm -hmm. you've got like some trays with uh, little um, plastic chips in, I think, as far as I can tell. So how does all that fit together yeah. to, to teach kids how to code? So um, the, the first thing we do is we, we make a, a platform that really allows coding with the, the physical objects. So uh, the first thing we did was we wanted to um, support more complex commands. And I think that's what's been missing from, from nearly all of the other physical coding platforms. So mostly it's just um, going forward, turning left, turning right. But we, we really wanted to have like the, the more nitty gritty and fun bits of coding where, you know, you, you have loops and you have uh, logic states, statements like if statements and conditions and sensor inputs. So I think we're, we're one of the really few uh, tangible coding robots where you can do that kind of thing, you know, have a if statement and sensor inputs. And we also design our system to be extendable. I'd like to get back to the sensor part in a minute, but just to quickly focus mm -hmm. on the board again. So as far as I can see, it's like a, it looks like a, a kind of a, a town, I guess, with shops and, and places yep. to visit. And then on the plastic board, the, the kids and their families put the, yeah, the directions, go forward, go back, turn around. So are, are they like given missions that to, I don't know, go to the post office, then go and buy groceries or, or something or <laughs> is that what yeah yeah yes, okay. exactly okay exactly and how do the sensors work then um what does it sense so there's a um a proximity sensor that measures distance there's a sound sensor so it can measure like a loud noise or a quiet there's a light sensor to measure brightness and darkness and there's a token sensor, so Mojobot can detect if there is a token. So these tokens are mm. game items that Mojobot can pick up and carry around. Yeah, and there's a, there's a, you've got a GIF on the Kickstarter page showing this. <laughs> it's going around buying shopping by the looks yep. of it. <laughs> yeah. Actually, the robot is, is, is larger than it initially looks, it's, uh, which I guess is good. It needs to be durable, I suppose, with children. So. <laughs> uh -huh. Um, it, it's actually interesting. I was talking to a friend yesterday about interviewing you um, and we were talking about how uh, especially logic and loops and things like that can seem a very confusing concept when you're beginning programming, but actually they're things we do all the time. Like, uh, mm -hmm. do I have $10? Then I will go and get lunch here. If I have $5, I'll go and get lunch here, et cetera, et cetera. And in some respects, this is exactly what you've kind of got with this um, this this board game and the robot. You've got a, a familiar kind of scenario that people will recognize, and you're basically 
programming the robot to do well, not everyday tasks, but <laughs> at least at least help uh, kids see that logic and loops and and if else state if else statements are you know real world uh, processes that we go through every day. Yeah, and uh, you know the when when you do it on coding it it forces you to really be precise and it's a formalization. So as you said, we do decision-making and we do repetition in everyday tasks and in like normal thinking procedures, but maybe it's not as formalized and sometimes you, you don't see as clearly how it works, but with coding, all that stuff gets formalized and you test if you get to test and see straight away if, you know, your thought formation, does it actually work or not? And it becomes more structured. And with the the physical coding that we have and with the, the lights that show up, uh, you know, it shows which command the robot is executing. It really helps with the visualization of the, the flow of the, of yeah. the process. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, it, I think it really helps make these concepts a lot easier to pick up. And it's kind of nice it's not on a screen. That's actually, it's nice to get, be teaching these concepts, but away from a, a computer screen <laughs> or a very, very minimal screen yeah. anyway. It's just some colored shapes yep. on a kind of on a, on a, on a cube. It's not a, a tablet or something like that where a lot of other coding exercises yep. are. But I, I guess getting probably to a screen, how is it extensible? How can people extend it and... I mean, what, what do you think is possible for people to extend it with? So I think from, from these physical pieces, it's very easy to go on to um, another programming paradigm where, like, you know, on the computer mm. with a screen because the commands are essentially the same. So I think uh, you're... So I, the steps is maybe from a, a younger age group, four, five, mm. six, seven, eight, they can start with this physical coding and then... From that, when they go on to things like Scratch, like graphical-based blocks on the screen, then it's mm -hmm. a lot easier. And like our tool, I think it really helps explain the flow of the code, of the loop and if statement a lot better than on the screen because there's a visual feedback with the lights and what, if, what the robot is doing. And then from, so you progress in steps from physical coding to on the screen with graphic blocks. And then from that, you can go mm. to script, okay. typing, programming. And you, and so you plug the robot in to do that? Or how, how do they do that next, that next step? Oh, you mean with the, with like the screen-based programming? Yeah, because you say the, that the, the, the game and the robot is extensible. I just wondered how people can, can do that. Oh, the, it's extensible in the sense that you can add multiple boards so you can make your commands ah, okay, longer. Okay, okay. So it's not plugging the robot in to so, give it more functionality or anything like that. No, okay, okay. Yep, so like uh, in these kind of physical coding systems, you're normally limited to like, say, 10 commands. And then your, your program can only be 10 okay. commands long. Okay. Yeah. So... Okay. And I can see that with the, the boards. So um, how do people play the game? Is it a collaborative game or do the kids play against each other or both? 
So you you can play in many ways. So, but then the one rule we've made is a competitive game. So they they draw the mission cards and then they try to com complete them and uh, you challenge each other and see who can do the most missions. I, I do see some great pictures here with like four robots on the board with different coloured uh, antennae. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which does look quite cool, and it's quite big. The board is quite large by the looks of it. It's around eighty centimeters. Okay, okay. I guess I guess they're children, so it looks larger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, what are you aiming this for? Is it for uh, for individual families or for schools, or are there different kits for both? I think it's okay. for both. It's for both, but. Yeah, um, I think our, we really want it to go into schools because I think that's that's where you know we we can have the the most impact in terms of you know changing the education system. But uh, I think it's also very good at home, and we we tried to design it so it can be used mm. in the home, and that's why we emphasize on creating this game aspect because uh, we want it to be also played in the homes. And we think, you know, if it's just some coding activities, then kids would be, they might do a bit, but then, then they do, they do with the activities and then they finish. But when it's a game, they can keep mm. on playing, and it's a open-ended play where, where they practice through through having fun. It's also a very social activity. So imagine if you're gonna have kids playing together in a coding game, and everyone is on their mobile phone or tablet then then i think it kind of defeats mm. the purpose of getting together and you know sharing sharing this uh physical environment yeah. together yeah it's strange actually because when i look at it now the game reminds me of a board game which you might have come across i'm not sure called robo rally have you heard mm -hmm. of that game it's no so it has some similarity, but it's it's very different. <laughs> it's not really meant for teaching mm -hmm. anybody anything. <laughs> it's, uh, it's actually mm -hmm. made by the same person who made Magic the Gathering, uh, Richard Garfield, the very popular card mm -hmm. game. And it's a competitive game, and mm -hmm. you're supposed to program robots, but half the time it's impossible because then uh, other players usually go before you and everything you've carefully programmed, in quote marks, gets disturbed because all the robots just crash into each other so <laughs> so it's it has a, a sort of similar idea of putting like the different directions and things like that but it's completely chaotic you don't really learn anything it wouldn't be very good for children either because you'd get very annoyed with each other very quickly but um it's worth having a quick look at just for uh, just to see um it's a very different you look you're aiming at very different markets but uh, it reminded me a little bit of it when i first saw it um, but it's just a it's just a normal board game. It's not an educational game or anything. But you'll see some similarities. Mm -hmm. um, what what sort of market are you aiming this at? Because you're in Thailand, I can see your uh, the Kickstarter is in Hong Kong dollars. So is this predominantly aimed in the Asian market, or are you also looking to Europe and America and other places? Uh, we're looking worldwide, yeah. really. So. Yeah, we're we're just putting it out there and and seeing what kind of response we get, and we're we're hoping that people um, mm. like it and they find it interesting and 
we really want to get it around the world. What made you want to start this in the first place? Um, you'd be doing education, but why go to a product? What, what made you want to do that? Um, so we're, so there is twofold. So one thing is we've been teaching kids and we, for our students, we want to show them that, you know, what we're teaching, what they're learning, it can really, they can really use it to, to build something, something cool and fun, you know, something useful, something that makes the world better, a better place, or, you know, that might sound cliche, but, um, so that's one fault. The, the other reason is because we, we really love this physical coding concept and, and for the, the products that are out there, none of it really satisfies mm -hmm. us. You know, we want something more, more meaty that you can do lots of things with, you know, like something that you can really code, like when you're mm -hmm. on the computer, but not needing the computer and also make it fun. And I, I think in that sense, it's kind of different. And to to get it to play as a board game, we have had to overcome some yeah. challenges. For example, um, the robot has to move precisely. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. So you know, if say, if the kids make a really long, long program, like sixteen over twenty commands, and the robot runs here and there, you know, long mm -hmm. distances then with normal systems on the market, then the robot will not actually get where it's supposed to because it's just running on the, you know, just turning the motors and counting mm -hmm. the rotation. And that's not an accurate way mm -hmm. of moving. So for us, it's important to make sure that the robot gets to the correct location. Otherwise, it becomes mm -hmm. frustrating and also becomes confusing for the kids. And for that, we've uh, designed the map to have these special markers and the robot to have sensors that track them. So with the system, the robot can go round and round in loops and still maintain the correct position. And, and because we can solve these problems, we, we, you know, we can make our system extendable with lots of coding commands. We can have loops and, and the whole system still functions mm -hmm. properly. I mean, how many uh, trials did it take to figure that out? Uh, yeah, a, a lot of trials. <laughs> so it's been been two years. So we we test the system with kids. Like in in our earlier prototypes, the robot didn't move very yeah. accurately. So and when we tested with kids, it was just a very frustrating <laughs> exercise. Yeah. So we, we decided, okay, it's very important that the robot does what it's yeah, supposed to yeah. do. Yeah. I have made board games and they're frustrating enough and you've got a board game with technology in it. So <laughs> and and one that is designed to be flexible, which means people could are gonna try anything. So uh it does is it possible to make the robot go off the board or does that is that stopped somehow? No, the, the robot can okay. get off the board and, and we want it to be able to get off the board because that's where the, the kids see that they've made a mistake, but it should, the robot should go off the board because of the kid's mistake, not because of the robot's yeah. mistake. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah, the key yeah. thing. 
Um, but does it keep going? Like, does it actually work off the board at all? Or okay, yeah, it does work. It works off the board. So uh, at the beginning of every program, the Mojo Bot will do a little okay. jiggle, <laughs> and in that jiggle, he'll detect if he's on the map okay. or not. Okay. So if if Mojo Bot is on the map, then Mojo Bot will navigate using the 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 sensors that track the map markers. But if it's not on the map, if it's not on the map, it'll just uh, navigate using the motor encoders, counting the wheel yeah. rotation. So it will still work, but it will be less precise yeah, movement yeah, for sure. And, and so I'm looking on your the the website for Project Lab, and you've worked with quite a few educational robots. I recognize MakeBlock, uh, Mindstorms, Arduino to a certain extent. It's not explicitly for children, but it can be, and, and a few others. Scratch you've got here as well. Um, so I guess how many other examples of educational robots did you work with and, and try to analyze to figure out the, the weak points and the strong points and what you wanted to bring into okay. into MojoBot and, and not bring into MojoBot? So we've tested out pretty much n- nearly all the major robot uh uh, robotic uh, teaching material for mm. for kids. So, we've, as you said, Make Block, Lego, Fisher Technique. We've tried out the whole load of them, and and they're good. But when we tried them out with younger kids, it it doesn't seem to be quite the the right fit. So maybe they can do it, but it's a bit too complicated, and and the the barrier to entry is yeah. too high. Yeah. So. And 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 we see that this physical coding, tangible coding, is perfect, you know, for lowering that bar- barrier to entry. So to get started, instead of having to open the computer, get in the app, open a new file, uh, connecting the robot to the app, and then choosing the right settings, we 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 remove all that barrier, so they can get started within the first minute. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and the physical aspect. And I think the the physical aspect is a really interesting idea and a different idea. Um, yeah, <laughs> uh, obviously without directly trying it, but um, kids, I, I like to get their hands on things, and um, that works very very well. So, actually, on that note, have you tested how 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 tough the robot is? Um, kids maybe throwing it around and <laughs> things like that does it still work um i think it, it does work to a yeah extent it depends <laughs> on how how hard it was thrown but in terms of safety and you know these kind of quality standards we'll be passing all the the relevant regulations for the u.s for eu for asia pacific china japan we've got all those uh tests lined up and that also includes the drop test <laughs> so it will be it will be durable definitely to the industry standards the, the drop test i like that yeah. <laughs> yes there is a drop test so how how well is the project going so far um i think the kickstarter has been live i'm not sure for how long um but how how well has it been going so far um, not too bad, not too bad. And so we're about uh, mm-hmm. halfway there. 
and we we have hope that it will get fully funded. But this is our project up on Kickstarter, so we're kind of still learning yeah, the ropes. Yeah. Kickstarter is its own thing. And I guess if the Kickstarter does or doesn't work, will you go ahead anyway? Or are you, I mean, making physical products is expensive, as you probably know. Um, so is it something you'll try anyway? Or is the Kickstarter kind of the 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 investment you need to do this? Yes, the the Kickstarter is the investment we need, but if we fail, we're not going to give up. So we're going to keep keep pushing it, keep finding ways. So if the Kickstarter is a success, it will really help give us a big big boost. Get get us the funds to go into mass production. But if it fails, then maybe we have to reassess our plans, but we will continue to try and move okay. forward. And I guess, uh, so this is your first Kickstarter. I mean, how, how have you found it? What's, the, what's been the things that surprised you or were harder than you expected, easier than you expected? How have you found the process so far? Um, yeah, it is. I think it's a uh, it's challenging process. It's definitely, uh, it requires a lot of work and probably more work than we <laughs> thought. So... <laughs> and we were not the best yeah. prepared and, but ho but it's the i think the first step of getting it out there and seeing how what kind of feedback we get yeah and just it being out there i think it's it's been great that we've come across people like you chris if otherwise if we didn't put it up there then we wouldn't be talking here. I can't here. even remember how I came across it now. <laughs> Possibly just on a Kickstarter newsletter. I'm not sure. Um, uh -huh. Actually, looking at feedback, so you went to the Bet Show in London this year, which I have heard of. I can't remember what it stands for now, but it's basically educational technology. Um, how did that go? I mean, I guess a big show like that, there's probably lots of people making educational toys now, especially for coding. How... How did you manage to 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 stand out from all the others and encourage people to come and have a look at MojoBot over all the other uh, sort of similar-ish projects? So I we we had very okay. good reception good. at the Bet Show, and I that's because our product is unique in many ways, and there's a lot of features that a lot of problems mm -hmm. we've solved that other products haven't done. For example. The complex coding commands with uh, loops and ifs and uh, sensor inputs. That's something that we've done that others haven't. And we've made it extendable so you can increase the length of your code. And we've got the robot to move accurately on the map. So these are all features that other people don't have. So we're, we're and, and the, our robot can pick up uh, items. So that's another thing that others don't do. And because we've done all these things, we can make it an interesting mm -hmm. game. So it's kind of, we built up these features so that it supports Mojobot being played as a game. I, I think given all these features, our, our tangible coding robot does really stand out from the crowd. And, and we think it's one of the best systems mm -hmm. out there. And under, under the surface, um... What's what's MojoBot built in? I mean, how did you code it, and uh, what's your what was your experience of building your own robot? 
So it's built with a uh, ARM okay. Okay. controller. And um, it uses Bluetooth for mm -hmm. communication. And uh, the coding tags uses RFID yep. technology. Yep. Yep. And yeah, and there's various sensors like the the sensor for navigating the map, the, the wheel encoder sensors, the LEDs in the eyes. There's also a microphone uh, for recording sounds and detecting sound level and speakers. So I we, we want the robot to be fun. So we pack it, pack it in with light, sound, sensors, uh, picking up actions, and then all this combine and lead to the gameplay yeah. and designing it to be fun. I, I interviewed a company in uh, Germany a year or so ago who built industrial robots. And um, one of the, the issues they mentioned was that, you know, building a robot for every kind of um, platform is very different. There's not that many standards in, in building a robot. Uh, so did you just build everything from scratch or did you use some existing C or Python libraries or, um, yeah, how, how hard did you find it to, to program MojoBot? Um, so I, most, mostly, um, we, we built it from mm. scratch, but for say the low level interface, we, we work with the, the component suppliers. So. They they provide us the you know the coding interface and the library for 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 different components. For example, the sound chip. So for those we uh, we follow the um you know the the platform of the different mm -hmm. components. The the most challenging part in building the system was um how how to get this uh what what we've built is like a compiler yeah, yeah. because um. The, the board reads the command, translates it, and sends it to the robot. So we actually did have to build a compiler <laughs> of sorts. And that, that is the most yeah, challenging yeah. bit. But but it's not a fully-fledged programming language. So in that sense, it's on the scale of complexity, is still not that high. But it is the, the yeah. most challenging part in the coding side of there the can't project. can't be many... Uh mobile compilers <laughs> yeah. compilers running around on wheels <laughs> if the project uh, ends up being successful would you ever consider open sourcing the platform or would you rather keep it closed for the foreseeable future um we we can make I, i've been thinking about making open source but not maybe a hundred percent open source like um so because so some parts may remain proprietary, but then we would like to open parts so that people can create their own coding yeah, tags. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, for example, we might provide a, a um, RFID reader and writer where people can uh, read and write their own yeah. tags. Yeah. yeah. And and also open parts of the the MojoBot uh, S, SDK so people can have their own uh, MojoBot yeah, actions. Yeah, yeah. So now, for example, MojoBot can do like happy, sad, and dance, but people might want to add their own emotions or their own kind of routines to MojoBot. And um, so that, that's, that's the open source from the, the programming mm -hmm. side. 
but what we'd really like is also like open sourcing from the gameplay yeah. side. So now we've got one map and it's a jigsaw map. So we, we'd like it if people can create different maps and different arrangements. So it can, it doesn't have to be a square. They can make the map a lot bigger and into different shapes and have different themes. And, uh, there's also tokens that Mojobot can pick up. So also people can design different tokens and then there's the, the cards. So people can also design different cards and create lots of different gameplay with Mojobot. And I think that that is the bit that quite attracted us to this project is like, what we're really building is a tangible coding platform where you can code it like a, like you would do in real coding, just a bit simplified. Yeah, that, that sounds like a really cool and idea, then, especially like the idea of being able to put your own faces onto the robot and things like that. Um, and people, yeah. you know, a, a kind of library where kids can upload what they've created and things like that. Um, I think always seems to work quite well. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so. Okay, well, obviously the next, uh, well, 20 days at time of recording or 19 days at time of recording are going to be quite busy for you and um, hopefully things will go successfully. But uh, short of some of the ideas we already discussed here, like the, the SDK and, and those sorts of aspects, what, what else do you have planned or is this just taking up most of the time right now you can't think beyond the next 20 days? <laughs> Oh, you mean yeah, like for the future yeah. of Mojobot? So we we have a lot planned already, but it's kind of it's kind of just just kind of yeah. far away plans <laughs> at the moment. Because first first step is getting success, getting people you know playing with the current version. But our our goal for Mojobot is really to make a a tangible coding platform where you can code it like in in on the okay. computer. Yeah. So right now we have a two parameter system. So you have a command and you have a parameter and you can extend the code as long as you want. You can have a multiple, right now you can have one subroutine, but then we want in the future, we'll release more subroutine tags. So you can have more than one subroutine. So you can have subroutine A, subroutine B, subroutine C. We'll also make like uh, variable mm -hmm. coding tags. So you can save values into a variable. And we also want to make mass coding tags. So you can do uh, addition, you know, yeah. subtraction, yeah. multiplication, make yeah. counters. And then you can do comparisons and evaluate statements. So we want to keep adding those. So that's, that will all be built on the current mm -hmm. platform. But also far in the future, I, I envision a more a more complex system where it's not limited to two parameters, where where you can really just mm, do anything. Mm, mm. But but that would be like a more expensive concept. So we're we're taking yeah, it step by step. Yeah. And obviously, people can find the Kickstarter project just by looking at Mojo Bots on Kickstarter, and your website is projectlab.co.th. If anyone would like to actually get their hands on a, a prototype, um, are you going to any any more exhibitions in the near future where people might be able to actually 
see Mojobot and play with the prototypes? Um, not not in the near future, but we we do have plans to go back okay. to the pet show next year. So it'll be in January 2020. Okay. Well, let, let's hope that in the meantime, but, uh, <laughs> the 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 back the, the funding is successful. But if anyone really wants a prototype, then yeah, we we do have we do have a a bunch right now, so they can write to us and yeah. we can see. We can or see if you're passing can through Thailand, I guess, which people do. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so. yeah, definitely. If you're passing to Thailand, you can yeah. come and have a look. We're and, in Bangkok. Yeah, some of, so. I, you can see on the Kickstarter page lots of the different sort of stages of the prototype from kind of the one with the the eyes, and then I can see some early ones here where it's quite sort of boxy. Um, it's quite interesting yep. to see the different levels of of how how it's evolved. And that was my interview with Pooh from uh, Mojobot team. Head over to Kickstarter if you found that interesting and support the project. That's another weekly squeak for the week. If you have any feedback to give, please head over to christianchiller.com slash podcast for previous episodes slash contact to get in touch. Drop me an email, send me a tweet with any feedback on the episode. Please share, rate, review wherever you hear the show. Uh, head on over to uh, christianchiller.com slash newsletters for my general newsletter that accompanies this podcast and also for the new ethical tech newsletter that will be starting very soon. And that's it for this week. Next week, I think I will still be in this Airbnb. Hopefully, people will not be clattering ladders around next time. But who knows? Maybe there'll be even new noises for you to enjoy. But in the meantime, if you have been, thank you for listening. <laughs>